Amen. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And then verse 3 starts off with the major word, if, if. We're told in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 3, that unless two agree, they cannot walk together. Must be an agreement to have true godly fellowship. And the idea here is, if there is not agreement between two parties, then there's going to be disunity and there's going to be a disruption and a hindrance for the purpose that they want to achieve, even as Amos is saying, if it's just walking down the street. How much more so have we seen this statement played out in our society? Look at the president and Congress now. Look at the president and Congress when they agreed when it was all Democrat. They weren't able to get anything done then and they can't get anything done now. Look at Islam and everybody else or ISIS and even fellow Muslims. They can't agree and we see all the tragedy, tragedy that has come from that. Even parents and, grand, and children, not grandchildren, grandchildren are always in agreement, but parents and children especially during the teenage years. There was a lot of headbutting, a lot of disagreement there, and it seems like the household was disrupted. And Well, it was disrupted. Now, God is never going to be in agreement with man, but man must come to an agreement with God. And when I say agreement, there's no debate here. It's unilateral. This is God speaking to man what man must do and how man must be and be willing to receive that of the Lord, to come to an agreement with the Lord and to walk soundly with the Lord. Because if we do not come to agreement with the Lord, we will never have a sound walk with the Lord. And what we're going to be looking at here is God's people, God's people and the decisions and the choices that they must make to receive blessings from the Lord. So in actuality, this is what the book of Leviticus has been all about. God had promised to walk with Israel as they wandered through the wilderness, to dwell amongst them and then to dwell permanently amongst them as they came into the promised land. But there was a condition here. Israel would need to keep God's law if God was to remain in their midst. When man would break the law, and again, it's what Leviticus is really all about, God gave them the sacrificial system. Because again, in Exodus, we've got all of these laws, 613 of them, many things to do. Forget about the doing, just the remembering of all of these things. Well, man was prone to failure here. But God understood that. And so right after Exodus, we see there's Leviticus. And there's about a month time frame between the end of Exodus and the beginning of Numbers, the two books that sandwiched Leviticus. Well, Leviticus was given for the sacrificial system, the sacrificial system when man could not keep the law that God had given. And so we basically have seen this played out in Moses, a conversation that he had with the Lord back in Genesis chapter 33. My wife was asking me about this. It was part of her devotions this past week, but in, not Genesis, but in Exodus chapter 33, the Lord told Moses that he was no longer going to go before him, that he was going to send an angel, and all of a sudden Moses is in despair because he knows the value of having the Lord. He's seen the things that the Lord has done, the manna that has fallen from the sky, the water that has come from the rock, and how God has enabled them to overcome their enemies. And so later on, that was actually in Exodus chapter 32, 
when Moses, and well, I'll read it, Exodus chapter 32, verse 34. Now, therefore, go and lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. Well, then you skip down to Exodus chapter 33, verses 13 through 16. Moses speaking now. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, if you are truly a gracious God, he says, show me now your way that I may know you and that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us so we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And it works with us. I mean, how in the world do we know that God is gracious? How do you know that God is gracious? Well, because he's forgiven my sins. Well, how do you know? I mean, the only reason I know, the only way that I know, the only way that we know is, because God's with us. Because God's with us. His love never fails, and it never runs out. As long as we can draw breath again, we're able to repent and get right with God when we have wandered off of the path, when we're walking together and we've come into disagreement with God and gone a different way. And the only way that I know that God is gracious, and it's the way that we know that God is gracious, and that His Spirit inhabits us, that Christ lives with inside of us, and God dwells amongst us. And if God did not dwell amongst us, then we just wouldn't know. We'd be going out into the darkness. We would be going out into the unknown. But Moses understood how essential it was to have God in their midst and God leading them and guiding them. And it's the same thing that we need to know, that we need to understand. So in our walk through the wilderness, which is this life, is the Lord going to be with us or are we going to walk alone? Really, the decision is ours. One way is the way of blessings. The other way is the way of a lack of blessings or what's a lack of blessings? A lack of blessings is cursings. The choice is ours because what we will see tonight, and we'll look at it again next week, is a series of if you, followed by God's response of I will. If you, and that's where I stopped in verse 3, if you, and then you can look throughout the verses, then I will, God is saying. And now he's going to say it for the good, for the blessings, but he's also going to say it for the bad, for the cursings. If you, if you walk, but if you don't walk, Well, if you do walk, then I will, and we'll see the blessings. But if you don't walk, then you'll see the cursings as well. So in order to see what the Lord has for us tonight, we're going to divide this chapter up into four main sections. First is going to be an adoration, verses 1 and 2. Secondly is going to be a dedication, verses 3 through 13. Thirdly is going to be a declaration, verses 14 through 31. That's about as far as we're going to get tonight. And then next week, we'll see a decision, verses 32 through 46. So, in God's basic requirements of obedience, adoration is first on the list here. It's what we see in verses 1 and 2. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land or bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary I am the Lord. Very emphatic, very direct here. The adoration that man has for God is to be expressed in giving him the worship that he desires and the worship 
that he is due, that he deserves. Note in these two verses that the Lord first, he rejects any idol that would come between him and his people. You shall make no idols for yourselves. And you can sit there and you can think, well, I haven't constructed any kind of idol. I haven't bowed down before anything in my home, in my work, in my leisure. But I think if we really look carefully, we can see things. Because really what an idol is, it's anything that comes between us and our relationship with God. We've got that right relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How have I maintained it? How have I overseen it? How have I cared for it? Have I allowed something else to come in? I was talking to my wife the other day, and I told her, well, I'm thinking about taking another wife. You're laughing because that's ridiculous. <laughs> I didn't really do that. Um, but you're laughing because that's just so ridiculous. Well, I mean, how many times have we come before God and said, I'm taking another God? Now, you may not have said it in those terms, but you've done it in your actions. You've put something in your life between you and God or something to a higher stature in your life, something that you've given of your time, of your attention, which is all elements of worship. And we have worshiped at other altars. We have set up idols in our lives. We have taken that which is due to God and give it to others. And if you're honest with yourself, if you examine yourself, you'll see that you have done that. We've got to be sharp in our spiritual senses to make sure that we are walking in purity before the Lord. We need to take constant inventory of our priorities, making sure God is first in our lives. Because what you worship today, your children will sacrifice to tomorrow. Whatever it is that you worship, and they're going to see that, they're going to know it, and they're going to understand, and they're going to make it a bigger idol in their life. What you worship today, your children will sacrifice to tomorrow. Next, he commands that they would understand that he alone is God. The last part of verse 1, I am the Lord your God. And really what he's saying here is, the God who truly exists is your God. And if they would just simply think back to, to Egypt and all of the ways that God came and confronted through those plagues, the gods of the land, and why God was able to prevail over all of them, they didn't exist. They just simply weren't there. They're figments of the people's imagination, things that they had put up to worship but could do absolutely nothing for them when the situation arose to such a degree that they lost their firstborn children. And so God is saying, just as he introduced himself in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, I am that I am. I am the God that exists. And really Exodus and really throughout the Bible is God revealing himself to mankind as truly the God who is. And what God is saying, I am the Lord your God. Again, Lord is all capital letters, at least in my Bible. It should be in your Bible if the publisher did it that way. And Lord there is the tetragrammatron Yahweh. I am that I am. Your God is the God that exists. And when you have a God that truly exists, then really you've got somebody who is able to move and to act in all situations and circumstances of your life. Next, he expects us to respect the sanctuary. You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. Last time we met, we looked at all the Sabbaths, and we thought, what a great thing. Every seven years, I get a year off. I ask you to consider, just think, in your job, every seventh year, you would get it off, and you would be provided for it. You wouldn't have to work all year long. And then every 50th year would be the same exact thing. You would get that time off, and God would provide for you. 
he would provide twice as much for you the year before so that you would be able to, you and your family would be able to find rest in the Lord. Israel didn't do that. They didn't keep the yearly or the seven-year Sabbaths. And that's why they were brought into Babylonian captivity in order to give the, the, uh, the earth its rest. There was 70 years in captivity. But back then, the place where the Lord was to be worshipped and praised was the tabernacle, then the temple. But today, it's the people who we are, as God, again, dwells inside of us, and that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the command here is, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. In relevance for today, you shall find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall reverence the sanctuary. Keep holy that this is the place that God dwells, and since a holy God dwells inside of me, I am to be holy in return. John chapter 4, verse 23 through 24, Jesus told that woman at the well, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, this is true in the sight of God, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the Holy Spirit does lead us in worship. There's no doubt about that. But when he says spirit here, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about your personality, tetragrammatron of man, body, soul, and spirit. Spirit is our personality. It's how God meets us in a very personal way. And so my worship is to be personal. I am to give of myself. And in truth, Jesus is the truth. His word is the truth. And so those are the foundations of what true worship is. And then lastly, he gives a reminder as a warning, I am the Lord. I am the God who is. We can equate this to the very first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God. Notice what he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Thou shall have no other gods before me. You're no longer in Egypt. You're no longer amongst the people who worship foreign gods. I have taken you out of that and taken you, God could say, unto myself, I am to be your God. And it doesn't matter, even today, God has taken us out of the world, not to separate us from the world. We are to be out in the world in order to, to, uh, to witness and to make disciples. But nonetheless, I have been separated, sanctified, made, made as holy, taken out of the world, and he is to be my God. I am to have no other gods before him. I need to do inventory of my life, of our lives. Have we allowed a God? Have we constructed something that has taken our attention from God and given it to that which is definitely not a God that can do absolutely nothing for us? A dedication, verses 3 through 13. It's here that we start this series of if you then I will statements. It's in this series that the Lord is saying, if you are dedicated to me, then I will be dedicated to you. And again, how can two walk together unless they agree? And we're in agreement with the Lord as we're walking or we're living our life according to God's will and according to God's way. But we're like a two-year-old. Because a two-year-old, you know, all two-year-olds have ADD. You know, it's kind of see something and they kind of just wander off. And we can do that too. We see something of the world and we just kind of wander off. And there's God still walking that straight path and we've taken a perpendicular turn. And we thank God that he always allows us to come back. But God's saying, you know what? If you're walking by my side, then I will. And I will care for you in every way that is unimaginable. So in this series, God is again is saying, if you're dedicated to me in my way, 
his way is the word, then I will be dedicated to you. I will bless you as you're obedient to my word. So first the condition, verse 3. If, if you, makes it very personal. You can think them, but don't think them, think you. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them. And so this again is a statement that is conditional. If you're obedient to God's law, and when you fail, if you make the proper sacrifice, then, then you will be provided for. So he's not even asking for perfection. We're so of the mindset of the Old Testament having perfection and demanding perfection. He didn't demand that. That's why we've got Leviticus. And so, keep the law, do my best to keep the law. If I fail, there's a sacrifice. I do the same thing today. I try to keep, well, not the Jewish law, but the commandments of God and the things that the Lord desires. But if I fail, I have the sacrifice. I have the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of all sacrifices that put all sacrifices to bed or aside at least that I have the Lord Jesus Christ, that if I'm faithful to repent, he's faithful to forgive. And so the first thing he tells them then is, if you walk in my statutes, then verses 4 and 5, all of your needs will be provided for. Verse 4, then. So then then is probably a little bit bigger word than if, because then is God's part. Then I will give you rain in its seasons, the land shall yield its produce, The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full, dwell in your land safely. What is probably the number one concern in man's life is gathering his needs, is finding food, finding clothing, and finding shelter. In our day, today is finding a job that's going to provide those things. Matter of fact, we're even looking for a little bit more, but we'll whittle it down just simply to our needs. So just think what would happen. You know, if somebody told you, tell the average unsaved person at a young age, for the rest of your life, I'm giving you a personal guarantee, and it's something that they would believe for whatever reason, that all of your needs are going to be provided for. You'd be thinking that you're on easy street, that you're free. You're free from so much worry and free from so much concern. That no matter what happens, I may not be a rich person or whatever, but all of my needs will be provided for. Well, as good as that is, we've already got it. The word tells us, it's given us that guarantee to the born-again believer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And again, as Christians, we've got to see that and we've got to grasp onto that. God's going to provide for all that I need. And so get things classified properly as far as your wants and set those aside because God will even give you some of your wants. But look at all of your needs. Look at all the things that you have need of in order to live a productive Christian life. God is going to provide. Those are physical needs and those are spiritual needs. He's going to provide you food. He's going to provide you shelter. He's going to provide you clothing. It may not be the clothing you want, may not be the shelter you want, may not be the food that you crave, but nonetheless, God will care for you. And as God cares for you, God uses you because you are his poster child for a child of God who is walking in obedience to his word. Secondly, if man is obedient to the Lord, then he will guard over him. Again, verse 6, I will. 
I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put ten thousands to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. A description of Israel in their obedient days, but also the testimony of America in our history. I was watching, I can't even remember really what it was, it was a news show of some sort. And it was a village that ISIS had taken over and these people were refugees and they were just out in the middle of nowhere sitting there. And you can see they were almost in shock. And again, I'm trying to put myself in their place, putting, you know, as I see children, my children or my grandchildren, uh, but myself in, in their place and thinking, what happens if somebody came and invaded? What happens if I was displaced from my home? Sitting out in the Mojave Desert with a group of people who are in the same situation who couldn't do anything for me and I couldn't do anything for them. I mean, what happens if that would come upon this land? What happens if God would take his hand of protection from America? And again, it's so far from us. Even as I'm saying this, you could probably think, well, yeah, I can see how that would be a distressing thing. But on the other hand, you're probably thinking, well, that would never happen. And even if you're not thinking that would never happen, you're kind of in the background of your mind because it seems so far-fetched but we're getting closer and closer to that direction. America needs to see this as a warning of what could or maybe even what will happen, because again, if you read to the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, there's no America there. Should we be concerned about radical Islam? Yes, we should. But the biggest threat to our peace and our well-being is disobedient America. And even worse than that, disobedient church within America. Because it's the church that is restraining until we are taken away. We see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because of the existence of the church, the land is blessed. Now, the land doesn't understand that. The land doesn't recognize it. But nonetheless, it's true. There's going to be a time we know when we're taken out. And, well, the world is going to rejoice. Because that pesky, convicting church is gone. But there's going to be hardship that falls upon them that they... Never, never could have imagined. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. I look at shed as past tense. What happens when the grace is removed? And we look at our history. God has shed his grace upon us. You look at us in our starting, in our infancy. How God, the most powerful nation of the world at the time was England. And we were able to have that revolutionary war and emerge victorious. Then there's the war of 1812. We fought England again and we emerged victorious once more. There was the Civil War where America was split and it was, it was a very bloody war. Not only could the South have prevailed, but also foreign nations, we were very vulnerable at the time, could have came in and invaded us. But nonetheless, God kept his hand upon us. Then there was the, well, there was minor wars, but then there was the war to end all wars, World War I. But it wasn't because there was World War II. Then in our time, at least my time, there was Vietnam and then the two Gulf Wars. And we know wars are going to continue. But for the most part, they haven't been on our land. We've been separated from that. We live in relative peace. Sometimes even now, we forget we're at war. I was reminded because my son-in-law was there. He was involved, but... We can forget that we're at war. Whenever I have the opportunity to do the invocation for the City of Ontario City Council meeting, I usually remind them of that. Because I look at those people, and there's usually a few hundred people there. City Council's up there, and I'm thinking the only reason that they're able to be here, to be 
present in that place, but also conducting business, because the majority of people sitting there are conducting business of some sort, is because God has been gracious. Because God has been gracious, and because men, young men and young women, have spilled their bloods on the battlefield for that. And that night, while they're meeting that city council meeting, while they're bickering back and forth and doing all the things that they do, there's young men and young women who are sitting, standing on the wall protecting and even fighting and maybe even some giving their lives at that very moment so that we can conduct ourselves in relative peace. And we need to look past all of that. We need to see God and God's hand of provision and God's hand of protection. Once we fail to see that, then, well, judgment is going to come. What happens? What happens when we're invaded? Who's going to invade us? We're, we're so isolated. I don't know, but I know that it's very possible, and I know it's very probable if we continue in the direction that we're going. Psalm 29, verse 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Next, if man is obedient to the Lord, then he will shine his face upon man. Verses 9 through 10, for I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. What God favors, God multiplies. As he multiplies, he also provides. And so the idea is he's going to grow this nation. As he grows this nation, he's going to increase the provision for that nation. Because again, God's face shining upon them is God blessing them. God's face turning away from them is God cursing them. But as long as we have that heart for the Lord and continue to walk in the Lord's ways, not in perfection, because again, there's a sacrifice. They had their sacrifice that we looked at Leviticus. We have our sacrifice that we saw in Calvary. But nonetheless, as because of the sacrifice, as long as we have a heart for the Lord, God's face is going to shine upon us. And as long as God's face is shining upon me, what more do we really need? I mean, if God's true and total attention is directed at me, then I'm just walking in victory in every step of my life. And again, when I stumble and fall, if I confess that I'm sinning, then God will forgive. And I don't go on sinning just because I know I can confess, but nonetheless, we're still people of the flesh. But God is going to watch over me, and God's going to keep me. Psalm 107, 38, he also blesses them and they multiply greatly, and he does not let their cattle decrease. Next, if man is obedient to the Lord, then he will dwell among him. Verses 11 and 12, I will set my tabernacle among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Speaks of the relationship that we enjoy with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what the Apostle John pointed out in chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, or tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And that's what Israel was able to do in that tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in the promised land. They would see in the cracks and the crevices, they would see the glory of God. And just think of how well you would sleep at night, not worried about the enemies around you, because the glory of the Lord dwelt amongst you. And again, it's that confidence that we have that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ dwells inside of us, and we should be able to see the glory through the cracks and crevices of our flesh. We should be able to see and understand that God truly is with us and, and goes with us wherever we go. 
yeah, the flesh is going to be there, as said before, but nonetheless, not only does God tabernacle amongst us, he tabernacles within us. It's the blessing of knowing that he is with us even to the end of the age, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and that he lives within sight of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Before it was only the Levite that had access to God, now we all do because Jesus Christ, his flesh was torn. And because his flesh was torn, that middle wall of separation to the Holy of Holies, to the throne room of God, that was torn from top to bottom. Kind of like you would tear a telephone book, or somebody who could tear a telephone book would do so, and it opened up. It opened up all humanity to boldly enter in to the throne room of God. What a blessing that is. If man is obedient to the Lord, then man will find freedom. Verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. And so God is saying, and well, you can relate it back to the first part of Exodus. What were they doing? They were in bondage and they were praying. And it said God heard their prayers and he decided to answer their prayers. And he sent the man Moses and we know the rest again. He delivered them from that helpless, hopeless situation. They were slaves. They had absolutely no say-so over their lives whatsoever. And God set them free. Well, we have been told that if the Son sets us free, we'll be free indeed. And matter of fact, verse 13 is applicable to our lives, just substituting here a little bit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of sin, that you should not be its slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. God has set us free from sins. No longer are we to be slave to sin, but obedient to God. Psalm 116, verse 7, 17 I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. So, all these things promise if. Now, they're God's people. We're born-again believers. God's people. But there's still the if there. See, sometimes because of grace, we forget about the if part. Forget about the walking strongly with the Lord. And again, we look throughout the Old Testament time and time again. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We're told that if we're truly Christians, then we're going to be obedient to what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be. And again, sometimes we can use grace, or maybe I should say defile grace, and use it, use it as an excuse. But there is still the if in our lives. Not if we're saved. But because we are saved, are we going to walk in obedience with the Lord? So all these things promised if. The then I will that follows makes those two letters of the word if one of the biggest and most important words of the life of a Christian. That I want the hand of God upon my life. Well, if, if you walk in the ways of the Lord. Because I've seen those and I've experienced it myself. We all have that I haven't. There hasn't been the if to the positive, the if you walk, and I realized that I've wandered away, that I wasn't in agreement with the Lord. I had wandered away according to my own will and my own way, and as I have done so, I didn't live a blessed Christian life. I lived a Christian life that was under bondage, and there's nothing worse than a born-again believer who's living his life under bondage to sin and the world once again. Come out of that, come back to the Lord. If you start over with him, He'll be faithful to start over with you. 
And so if Jesus is Lord, then we will do the things that he says and be blessed. He will move and minister in and amongst our lives. Next thing we see is a declaration in verses 14 through 31. Now we have the results of breaking God's law and forsaking his solution. So breaking God's law and forsaking the sacrifice. Because again, if I break God's law, if I sin today, I have that sacrifice on Calvary. But either through pride or through listening to the lies of the devil, I can fail to approach that sacrifice for the forgiveness that I received there. And again, live a life that is in bondage to sin. And it's the same thing. They break the law. You've got to make the sacrifice. If you fail to make the sacrifice, then you're not walking in victory with the Lord. So this declaration, look at verses 14 and 15. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all of my commandments but break my covenant, I also will. I also will. We have the results of the breaking of God's law, again, and the forsaking of his solution. And again, a choice is implied as we see the words, if. Here we see the words, but, if, because, again, there's a transition to the negative here. So if verses 4 through 13 were blessings for obedience, then verses 16 through 31 are the curses for disobedience. If man is disobedient to the Lord, then he will, and this is the first point, then he will experience diseases, discouragement, and defeat. Verses 16 and 17. Also I will, or I also will, do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies, those who hate you shall reign over you. You shall flee when no one pursues you. We can see these things pretty much come to fruition in the book of Judges. But again, looking at these things, what direction is the United States of America heading in this area? Look at all the diseases we're having. It seems like every year there's a new disease that comes down the pike. I mean, Ebola. A couple of years ago, have you ever heard really of Ebola? I mean, maybe you heard of it, but you weren't really concerned about it. And again, it just seems like every single year there's something new. And again, this is not a coincidence. As people forsake God, he leaves them to fend for themselves. When we are sick, we'll take medications. But really, what do the medications do that we take? They don't really heal us. They're mostly for the symptoms, really. And, and, and the sickness, usually it comes from waiting it out. And what I mean by waiting it out the body kind of takes care of it because God has created us this way. And since the body is the Lord's, the Lord uses it to filter out diseases and sicknesses and whatnot. I mean, I know surgeries are necessary and I know there's medications that do heal and all, but again, the point is it's ultimately the Lord who brings about the healing. When we plant seeds, it is the creator that makes them grow and bear fruit. Probably something that we take for granted. But have you ever? every time I've ever planted a seed, I've never planted a seed in faith because I just don't see how it works. But I planted seeds, and I've seen them grow in my backyard. Sean talked me into planting a garden one year, and I did, and I planted a bunch of radishes, and guess what? A bunch of radishes sprang up. My wife wasn't in sin then, so God blessed the harvest of the radish. <laughs> 
But, I mean, it's a cool thing because you look out there and you see the little green things start poking up through the dirt and they keep getting bigger. Then you see the head of the radish growing. And it's just a neat thing just to see how God does that. And it just rises out of the dirt. And God is just amazing. My mom was complaining the other day that this year her orange trees did not produce any oranges. Her orange trees always produce abundance of oranges. Now, mom's not in sin that I know of, but, you know, it kind of goes cyclical as well. And again, God's just got his plan. He's got his hand upon all of these things. But what happens when God does not move in the midst of the harvest? When we are vulnerable, it's the one who is mightier than us who protects us. What happens when he pulls his presence from his people? Sicknesses and disease grow worse. That's happening in our society. Food sources become scarce or defiled. We try to make them better with GMOs, fighting against God, killing man, and nations become vulnerable. It's just God ramping up the knocking as he knocks upon the heart of a nation. Oh, that there would be revival in this nation again. Next, if man is disobedient to the Lord, then he will break you, verses 18 through 20. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. That should be a wake-up call for California. The idea is, is that the heavens like iron, no rain's coming down. The earth is like bronze. The earth is hard as a rock. And, you shall, and, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield your fruit. And the idea is, you're taking care of all of these things. You're doing everything you can to make them produce. But because you've turned your heart from the Lord, the Lord who provides all of these things is no longer going to provide. And all of your actions and all of your efforts are going to be for naught if you're not obedient to the Lord and the Lord's way. He will break you. If man is disobedient to the Lord, then he will reduce you. Verses 21 through 22. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highway shall be desolate. Well, when we were studying the book of Revelation, we saw that one of the curses were the coming of beasts. But what were the beasts? I mean, I look at United States of America. I just won't go in the ocean because there are sharks out there, so I'm safe from that. I mean, how many bears are there? There's very few grizzly bears anymore. I know God can multiply them. But really, the most dangerous beast that had ever existed is vermin, such as rats. Remember the Black Plague? And it's, it wiped out almost whole societies, whole towns and villages. And again, when we see the things that are happening, as drought comes, as death comes, those things, they increase. And as they increase, as they go out of control, and we're starting to see some of this vermin is, is, isn't so susceptible to the poisons and the control that is out there. I remember when I was an electrician, I used to do work in the city of La Habra. We used to do some of their maintenance, and I would go into the sewer department guy's uh, office, and he had a big map, and he had a bunch of spots all over. Actually, there were skull and crossbones all over. And I asked him, what was that? And he goes, oh, those are the high rat areas. And I was looking at my house, and I wasn't in a high rat area, thank God. But, you know, I was just surprised. And I'm sure we have that in Ontario. We have that anywhere man is. And, again, we're kind of keeping that under control. What happens when it goes out of control? then you'll truly see that those are really beasts and they're really going to work that destruction that is talked about here. If man is disobedient to the Lord, then he will disturb you, verse 23 through 26. And if by these things you are not <clears throat> reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, 
then I will also walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance, the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall break, <laughs> bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Because again, we think we can so provide for ourselves. What happens when you go to the supermarket and there's nothing on the shelf? What are you going to do? That's how we've provided for ourselves all of our lives. We've gone down to Ralph's or Stater Brothers or Lucky's or Market Basket, if you're of my generation. Most people don't know what that is. Alpha Beta. We could probably go through the whole list of stores. But what happens when the store shelves are empty? What are you going to do? And then lastly, if man is disobedient to the Lord, he will simply destroy you. Verse 27 through 31. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. So we see exactly what they did, or what God was talking about in this particular verse as far as they did it. They were in direct disobedience to verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves. And going forward in history, we see they did just that. They made idols for themselves. And what happened to the northern kingdom? They were cast into uh, Assyrian captivity. What happened to the southern kingdom? They were cast into Babylonian captivity. What's going to happen to the United States of America? Decisions ours. Decisions ours. And when I say ours, I mean the churches. We, are, we have the ability to make a difference. Are we going to be able to deliver this nation? I don't know. I don't know what God's timetable is. But we have to live our lives as if, well, what if the reason that the United States of America is not mentioned in the book of Revelation isn't because of the negative, but it's because of the positive? What happens if the church catches on fire and there's revival in the land? And I know the whole country's never going to be saved, but what if the vast majority of this nation is saved and when the rapture comes... It's a third world nation because there isn't too many people left here. There's that possibility. And we always got to grasp on to the positive possibility. The possibility that I'll make a difference through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what God wants to do in and through our lives. Deuteronomy 30:19. I call heaven and earth as a witness against you. I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Father, we just thank you for your word again that directs us. Even as you were directing Israel, Lord, so long ago, Lord, you used those same words to guide us and to show us what your will is and the direction of your way. Father, I pray that we would be people that would walk in agreement with you, that, Father, we would walk by your side, never lagging behind, never pushing forward, but right there, Lord, walking in perfect obedience. And so, Father, I just thank you for this evening. Pray, Father, that things that we talked about Lord, would be things that you would make applicable to the individual lives here today, that we would be stronger in our relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please?